Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Last Sunday we covered the first nine verses, and today I'm going to preach the rest of the chapter, but I want to review the first nine verses. They're too important. He wraps up chapter 5. Keep in mind he didn't write in chapters, but chapters were placed there to help us find passages quicker, help us in our learning. So he talks about the importance of us moving on and eating solid food and not staying on milk as believers. And some recipients of this letter weren't even drinking milk. I encourage you to go back on online and catch that sermon. So verse 1 says, Therefore, 
leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Let's go on to perfection. And he says what the elementary principles of Christ. Notice he said of Christ, of the anointed one, of the Messiah. Can we say Jesus? Let us go on to perfection. And then he tells what those elementary principles are. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. That is our foundation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Everyone's relationship with God begins with faith and repentance. We hear the gospel and we believe the gospel and we turn from our selfish ways to the Lord's way. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He turned from the wickedness of his generation and in faith in God for a hundred years built a boat when it hadn't rained yet, according to that story in Genesis. Abraham turned from the paganism of his family to follow the one true God and to obey him. And in faith offered up his only son to God. And God initiated a covenant with him because of his faith, the Lord entrusts his son to us. A beautiful picture of the gospel there in the book of Genesis. God made a covenant with that man. He changed that man's name. He made so many promises to him, and the roots of our faith is there. So these elementary principles of Christ start in the Old Testament, but they don't stay there. They carry over to a deeper level in the lives of his people. So that's the foundation. Repentance from dead works. Dead works are things that lead to death. Sin, the wages of sin is death. Dead works are those things you depend upon to make you right before God. There's nothing that can make us right before God except the blood of Jesus. Amen? And then we turn from those things and put faith in God through believing in the resurrection of Jesus and in his deity, that's where it all begins. That's our launching pad. So that's our foundation. And then here's our teaching. The word doctrine, don't let it throw you. It means teaching or instruction. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, verse 2, of the doctrine. And he gives four teachings here, four things that we're instructed about. Doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. These things are in the Old Testament and they're expressed in the New Testament. In the Old Testament there was plural washings. You immersed yourself in a river or in the mikvah in preparation for a feast or for ordination or for some special calling. The bridge between the Old and New Testament obviously is the cross of Jesus Christ, Him paving the way for the New Covenant. And He brought a new baptism where when we are immersed, we are putting faith in his death, his burial. We are buried like he was, and we rise up like he was arisen to walk in the newness of life. So the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the gospel. If a person doesn't believe that, do not baptize them. Don't ever rush anyone into somebody's baptistry because you must be immersed in water to be saved. No, you must believe in the Lord Jesus to be saved and turn from your wicked ways. 
And if that happens, you'll want to be baptized. You'll ask. I've seen little children beg. The Ethiopian eunuch was ready to be baptized. And Philip the evangelist in Acts chapter 8 said, do you believe with all your heart? And he says, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And they both went down in the water and Philip baptized this Ethiopian eunuch. He went home having turned from his self-willed ways, having turned from the religion of Judaism to following the ultimate Judaism, Jesus, following him, went home and led the queen to some form of believing, and they built the very first church building ever in existence in Ethiopia. So lives are changed through faith and repentance and expressed the new beginning that happens in water baptism. When we're saved, we're baptized into the body of Christ, the church, the people of God. That's not water. You're not water, are you? But are you part of the body of Christ? We're not water, are we? But are we an expression of the body of Christ in this community? Yes. So the Holy Spirit, who anoints the one witnessing, preaching the gospel to us, and convicts us of the truth, in so doing, he makes us part of the body of Christ. And we follow that up by being immersed in water by a baptizer. John the Baptist was a baptizer, getting people ready, getting ready for the coming of the Messiah. We're getting ready for the return, the second coming of the Messiah. And so we immerse in water. And Jesus immerses in the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist said, there's one coming after me, mightier than I, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I want to come back to that. The doctrine of laying on of hands. The Old Testament had the laying on of hands. You laid hands on a king to crown him as king. Moses laid hands on Joshua. Jacob laid hands on his grandsons. Uh, Abraham laid hands on his son. Hands were laid in bringing blessing to someone. Hands were laid on the sacrifice before it was offered up on behalf of your sins. So the laying on of hands was an Old Testament doctrine, but it's a doctrine of Christ, the Messiah, because he laid hands on little children and blessed them. He touched a leper, laying on of hands. He laid hands on his disciples, I'm sure, more than once. And there's a laying on of hands throughout the book of Acts. It's a New Testament practice. Praying for healing, for uh, commissioning for ministry, uh, ordaining, as it were, for a purpose, laying on of hands with prayer. It's a biblical principle. So this, these things are elementary, but we don't preach them all the time. Why? We want to go on. Some churches, all they do is preach water baptism, water baptism, water baptism, water baptism, water baptism, water baptism. I'm not belittling water baptism. Please hear me. But once you got it, let's go on. Amen? Um, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The foundation of our faith is a resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is it not? And the great hope we have. Well, the hope of the resurrection was in the Old Testament. There was debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees during the life of Jesus. The Sadducees were those theologians who did not believe in the resurrection. An easy way to remember that because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they were sad, you see. 
The word resurrection is not in the Old Testament, but the truth of promise of it is there, as well as is the coming day of judgment. And so we've got to make sure those things are laid in our life so we can go on. Some people never preach this because it says go on. So we're not going to do that. We've already got that. Meanwhile, they don't already have that. The recipients of this letter already had those things operating because being Jewish believers, Hebrews, they had come out of the old covenant into the new covenant. So these things already were active in their life and it was time to move on. But if they're not active in your life, you do need to understand. So there is a place for preaching these things. Amen? It's also possible to preach about the rapture, the rapture, the rapture, going to heaven, 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 getting away from our troubles, getting out of here, escape, escape, escape. All right, we got it. But it hasn't happened yet. So let's go on to perfection. You see the point? Not laying again these foundations, but going on to perfection. In verse 3, and this we will do if God permits so in our case, we believe these things need to be taught to new believers. But once taught, making sure it's caught, then we move on to truths like becoming more like Jesus. We've been predestined to be conformed to his image. That's a journey. Tell somebody, what a trip. Now, John the Baptist said this about Jesus, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now some have equated the Holy Spirit and fire as the same thing. I believe it's two different baptisms. The Lord baptizes us in the Holy Spirit, empowers us for ministry. But then there's this ongoing work of sanctification that is his ongoing ministry of purification in our lives. Where he deals with those things in our lives that need to be burned up. You see that? It's winnowing fan. That's a fan that fans the wheat to get the chaff away. It's how you separate chaff from wheat. Is you use wind. Blows the chaff off. He thoroughly will clean out his threshing floor. That's where the wheat is separated from the chaff, and then the wind, the fan, blows the chaff away. He'll gather the wheat into the barn and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So this is his ongoing work in our lives, but also it's his work on Judgment Day. Right? One day there's coming, a day of separation. So this is the ministry of Jesus. It's echoed in Luke 3. In 10, he asks his disciples... Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink and with the baptism I'm baptized with, you will be baptized. What was he talking about there? He's about to be immersed in torture, death. The gospel's about to be fulfilled in his life. It's not real exciting to go to the cross. Not real exciting to take the sins of the world and the shame that it brings and carry it upon yourself. Let me just say this about shame. Jesus came not just to forgive us, but to take away our shame. John the Baptist said it like this, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He doesn't just forgive. He takes it away with the shame. If you're living under the shame of your past, let it go. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washes white as snow. So in so doing, he was baptized into this incredible fire, the fire of affliction, carrying our sins for us and being separated from the Father. This passage is echoed in Matthew 20. In Luke 12, he said, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. So there's this fire he was going to have to go through for us. Not for himself, but for us. Do you see that? All right, let's go back to our text. That is my attempt to deal with baptism of fire. There's much more in the New Testament on it. Verse 4 is a passage that theologians have fought over for years. Let me read it to you. For it is impossible. Can we say not possible? For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, can we say enlightened, and have tasted the heavenly gift, can we say heavenly, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, can we say Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, can we say the word, and the powers of the age to come, can we say heaven. So this is an amazing thing, to taste the heavenly gift, to partake of the Holy Spirit, to taste the good word of God, and of the powers of the age to come, and to be enlightened. It's impossible for those people who receive these things, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put Him to an open shame. So there are two extremes in Christianity. Hyper-Calvinism, that's an extreme. And hyper-Arminianism, that's an extreme. Hyper-Calvinism is so extreme that you don't even know if you're saved. How do you know you're one of the predestined ones? How do you know? You might not be. Everyone's predestined for heaven or for hell. So it's all up to God and you have no part of it. I know that all glory goes to God for my salvation. He calls me to repent. Well, he calls everyone to repent, but everyone doesn't heed that call. So he gets all the glory for our salvation. Amen. Did you hear about the Calvinist that walked across the yard, stepped on a rake, and it flipped up and hit him in the nose? He said, boy, I'm glad that part of my life is over. (laughs) Get it? Everything's predestined. That Armenian did the same thing. Stepped on a rake, flipped up and hit him in the nose. He said, I'm an idiot. How can I be so blind? What a dumb blankety blank left this rake out here. Because everything is human responsibility. Both lead to insecurity. And so when they come to this verse, Armenians like to use it to prove you can lose your salvation. But they all believe you can get it back if you lose it. Unless you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, when that's not mentioned here. Whereas the hyper-Calvinists believe you can never lose your salvation, and yet here's this passage they have to deal with. And they wrestle back and forth and fight. Meanwhile, the answer is so simple. 
What is the name of this book? Hebrews. So the recipients of this book were Hebrews who had lived under the Old Covenant. Then the Messiah came and brought the New Covenant. If they turn back, fall away from the New Covenant, what do they do? They'll default back to the animal sacrificial system depending on the corrupt high priesthood and all that. If they go back there, not good. It's not a good thing. That's what he's talking about. Here's the problem. We read the New Testament with Gentile eyes, because we're Gentiles, right? Unless we're Jewish. And even then, we read them with 21st century eyes and not put ourselves in the shoes of the people receiving this at the time they received it. They had lived under both covenants. Now they're living under the better covenant, tasting the age to come, and, and their eyes being enlightened, tasted the good word of God, and uh, you know they could visit the empty tomb. I mean, so much blessing had come their way. For them to turn back is to put the Lord to an open shame. It's to say your cross wasn't enough. What has caused this misunderstanding? Replacement theology. It's the belief that church has completely replaced Israel and God has no use for Jews any more than any other race of people. It's not true, folks. Christ bring the new covenant to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So we're not talking about salvation by living under the old covenant. We're talking about salvation through the new covenant. And it was given to the Jews first and is still to the Jews first. So when you read this, you do not think this is for Gentiles and Jews are cut out of the picture. This is what causes the misunderstanding. Replacement theology brought a lot of chaos into the church. If the gospel was to the Jew first and we attempt to do something evangelistically that would repel Jews, we need to check ourselves and say, hey, this uh, violates the gospel to the Jew first mandate. But when the church threw that out, they didn't care. Bring in statues. Let's pray to Mary. Let's do this. Let's do that. Things that Jews would never go along with. Idolatry coming into the church. Whereas keeping the gospel to the Jew first keeps us purified from paganism coming in and being mixed with the truth of the Bible. Do you see that? And it keeps us from misunderstanding this very text. And if those theologians and Bible teachers are all over YouTube who are misunderstanding this thing and fighting about it would simply open their eyes and see the gospel is still to the Jew first. They would see who this is written to. That, uh, yeah, if they, if they fall away, what are they falling away to? They're falling away to the old covenant again. It's who they're written to. This book is written to them for this purpose. So just zoom out from it and look at the big picture. If you fall away to the Old Covenant, there's nothing back there. Well, pastor, why is it in the Bible? Why is it any use to us? Because there's a wind of doctrine that blows through the land every decade or so. It's even blowing through the land right now that is teaching if you really want to be saved, you better keep the 613 laws of Moses. And when you point out the ones they're violating, because it's impossible to obey, they say, well, you're supposed to try to keep the laws of Moses. All that does, folks, is keep you busy with religion and it kills evangelism 
And it doesn't impress the Jews anyway. Because they know it's impossible to live by, all the, live by all that stuff. That's why they're tied up in all the fence laws, focusing on that. How many steps do you take in the Sabbath day? And who turns your light switches on on the Sabbath? And all that other stuff, because there's nothing there. Christ came and brought a better way. The laws of Moses, all 613 plus of them, were to show we can't be righteous on our own. Those things were nailed to the cross with Jesus. Read Colossians. Oh, and you have to keep the feast day if you really want to be a believer. Well, Passover, according to the Torah, cannot be celebrated unless you're circumcised. So if you're a man and you're doing that and you're not circumcised, you're already violated the Torah. Now, I believe in celebrating the Passover, not for the sake of righteousness, but for the sake of a deeper understanding of who Jesus is to us. It's awesome. We've had Passover Seder in this very room. But there are people that are being drawn away from the gospel to try to keep the old covenant. Somehow, the real truth isn't enough for them. And maybe it's because the church has neglected the Old Testament, never teach from it, never gain understanding from it, and it's created a vacuum that allowed this extreme to blow through. So this passage still stands. So if you want to trade the 70-plus commands Jesus gave for the 613 Moses gave, be my guest. But there's no room for repentance if you do that. You're putting Christ to an open shame. Jesus is enough and his blood is too. When he said it is finished, he met you and me. Amen. Verse 7. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. Now, let's just pause right there. There's a parenthetical statement in the middle of that, separated by commas. So we could read the first statement with the third one and then read the second one and still not violate the meaning of the verse. But maybe we could understand it more. So the first phrase, for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it. Third phrase, receives blessing from God. Second phrase, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated. So the blessing of God brings usefulness from the earth, right? But if it bears thorns and briars, the same ground that receives rain from God, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So it's a serious thing that we bear fruit, that the Lord his rain isn't wasted on us, but we bear fruit and we get rid of the thorns and the things that are counter to his will for our lives. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 7. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. So the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and the whole world is blessed, and here comes the fruit, good fruit and bad fruit. Look at what he also said. 
Then he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire. Can we say fire? Prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. We say fruit. So the fruit of not caring for those less fortunate than you, doing nothing for those who are struggling, the Lord takes it personal. And there's fire for that in the future. Jesus said, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. The context of John 15 is he is the vine, we are the branches. And the branches that abide in the vine bear fruit. So the key to being fruitful is staying close to Jesus, following him, and we will bear fruit. And there are prunings in our life in order to make us more fruitful. What do the clippings, where do the clippings go from a pruning? They go in the fire just like the unfruitful branches go. So we all go through fire. We all go through cleansing for the sake of the Lord being formed in us. Let's talk about something today. Confidence for better things. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, you'd speak to us from the rest of this chapter that you would build up confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. So those first few verses can really rattle us. A person tasting heavenly things, impossible for them to be uh, granted repentance. Oh my goodness, what's going to go on? Well, verse 9 gives us hope. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So I'm going to share quickly eight things, four pair of things that can give us strong confidence. And the writer is confident of better things for the reader than what he had just mentioned. God is just. Or you could say it like the text says, God is not unjust. For God is not unjust to forget. And God is not forgetful. We serve a just God who is not unjust and he is not forgetful. He knows your name. He knows your address. And he <laughs> knows how to keep us in the fold. Well, doesn't the Bible say he forgets our sins? Not actually. It says he, he will not remember. He will not remember our sins. There's a difference between forgetting and not remembering. Now, when you forget, you don't remember, right? But if you choose to not remember, you see, forgetting is a sign of weakness, right? I forget things all the time. It's a sign of getting older. Bob is chuckling. 
But God has no weakness, but he can will to not remember something. He will not charge you or will not remember your sins against you. He chooses to not remember. Somebody asked Mother Teresa about an offense that had happened to her years earlier. Someone had mistreated her, disrespected her. Who knows what it was? It happens to us all. She said, why are you bringing that up again? I distinctly remember forgetting that. So the Lord remembers to forget, but he's choosing to not remember. That's right. But in your state before him, he is not forgetful. He's not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown toward his name. You will be rewarded. So if you're here condemned because you slipped up and stumbled and cussed when you hit your finger, called his name in vain when somebody pulled out in front of you, Jesus Christ! Why don't they call him Muhammad when they do that? Because it's not as blasphemous. Doesn't have the oomph. God will forgive you. Turn from your sin. Amen? The text goes on, we desire that each of you, each one of you, each one of you, show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the key to being a fruitful believer, receiving the rain from heaven, is not being a slacker. Being hopeful, holding on to the full assurance the Lord gives. God gives full assurance. Not partial assurance, but full assurance. As humans, sometimes we can't give full assurance. My son would say, Dad, do you promise? You promise? And I knew what he's doing. He would hold me to my word if I broke one iota of my promise. I'd say, I learned real quick with him. Son, I can't fully promise, but I, I hope we can pull this off. Well, God, it's full assurance. If he promised, you can take it to the bank. He honors faith and patience. When he gives you a promise, you can have faith in that promise, but you're going to have to have patience. We don't like that, do we? But it is the characteristic of the patriarchs of faith. Abraham not only was a man of faith, but he was a man of patience. The faith kept him believing, and the patience kept him believing. Faith and patience. Tribulation works patience. Some people say don't pray for patience because it'll bring about tribulation. Well, no one's going to pray for patience if nothing's going wrong, right? So why would you pray for patience in the first place? Because all hell's broken loose in your life. You better pray. Help! Help! Impatience will make you give up. Text goes on, for when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply you. So he promises to bless him and multiply him, and he makes himself responsible to be the one to do it. Blessing, I will do it. Multiplying, I will do it. And so after he had patiently endured... He obtained the promise. There's faith and patience. So God makes promises and he swears to keep his promises. 
His word is good. But then when he swears, it's extra good, right? For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Oh, you pinky swear, or oh, you swear, okay, let's stop fighting, we can trust your word. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Can we say strong consolation? That word consolation relates to confidence, it relates to hope, it relates to comfort. Strong. The Greek word there for strong means forcible. It's a force of comfort in our life because of these two things. The word that he swears to keep and the oath that he made to keep it. Where did this happen? in the life of Abraham. When he cut covenant with Abraham, he had Abraham sacrifice some animals, cut them in two pieces, and then he put Abraham to sleep. And he walked as a smoking torch and burning oven, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, he walked between the pieces and made promises to Abraham. That's an ancient covenant-making ritual. Basically saying, if I don't fulfill this, may, hap- may, may it happen to me as it has happened to these animals. God made himself personally responsible with this oath. And he fulfilled it himself through Jesus on the cross. There he is as God and man, hanging between heaven and earth. His body wasn't split, but he was split. When he cried out, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? That was the worst torture there was, where there was this division, if not for a moment, maybe for an hour. Who knows how long it was. But he paid the price for breaking the covenant in making the covenant. See what I'm saying? The price of breaking the covenant is death. So in his death, he paid the price for breaking the covenant. So you cannot break the covenant the Lord made for you and his son on the cross because he paid the price for that. We, like Abraham, just receive. (laughs) It's good news, folks. It's awesome. So God confirms his promises with an oath. And he cannot possibly lie. It's not his character. It's not his nature. He's totally righteous. And so when he makes a covenant, you can bet he's going to keep it. Hebrews 6, 17 in the New Living, says it like this, God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. Let's review in closing these eight things. God confirms his promises. He cannot possibly lie. He honors faith and patience. God gives full assurance 
He swears to keep promises. He makes promises. He keeps those promises that he makes. He swears to do it. He is not forgetful, and he is just. Well, he's not unjust. Look at these. God is not unjust. God is not forgetful. God makes promises. He swears to keep promises. God gives full assurance. Our part is to have faith and be patient, and he honors that. He confirms his promises with an oath, and he cannot possibly lie. I have a question for you. Does that give you hope? Have you got hope, folks? Look at these promises about hope. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, that's us, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Hallelujah. Chapter 8 of Romans, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. The place for hope is to hold you in place, to hold you in faith when you can't see it. I can read it, I can hear it, but I just can't see it yet. Hope will tide you over, will carry you through. My mother, when she'd cook, us kids would just be so hungry, and she'd call us in and get us, give us each a slice of a, of a raw potato. Here, this will tide you over. The Lord gives us, the Lord gives us hope, not as a snack, but as a power to help carry us through. Have you got hope? Romans 15, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is our living hope. 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul wrote, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us an everlasting consolation, there's that word again, strong consolation, and good hope by grace, Comfort your hearts and establish you for every good word and work. Can we say hope? Watch this. Sometimes we think of hope as a wish, one that we want to come true, but know it might not. But in reality, hope is not that at all. Hope is defined as to wish for something with expectation of its fulfillment. To hope is to have a desire and be confident that it will happen. In the Bible, hope is linked to faith and implies expectation, trust, and patient waiting. The Greek word elpis appears 54 times in the New Testament and over 30 times in the form elpizo. Elpis is a confident trust in God even when waiting must be endured. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. 
and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Can we say living? living. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's celebrate that today. Jesus Christ, my 
Complete this sentence for me. There's salvation in the name of? Jesus. There's life in the name of? Jesus. There's faith in the name of? Jesus. There's love in the name of? Jesus. There's healing in the name of? Jesus. There's hope, living hope, in the name of? Jesus. Jesus. Amen. The Lord bless you. With strong hope. Hopelessness has no place. We're not like those who have no hope. Of all men, most miserable. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. His shalom peace that's based on the living hope. Peace himself, the Prince of Peace, Jesus. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. God bless you. Go get him, tigers.